a couple prayer uh, requests we want to take before God, and then we'll look at our study for this evening. And again, we want to continue to pray for Carol. Carol Pacho, uh, again, has lung cancer. And we do pray that God would just, you know, be with her during this time and her family. Uh, for Brother Mario, um, again, is, um, for his lungs, and um, they, the, you know, there would not be any difficulty there. And that, uh, uh, again, the doctors would be able to take care of whatever might be there. For other, also for Mr. Lines, uh, Mike Lines' dad, uh, and the rest of the family, the Lines family, want to pray for him and Mrs. Lines as well as... Um, Again, he's got these uh, serious heart problems, and we do want to lift up the family. So let's pray. Father, we come before you, and we ask in Jesus' name, God, that you would just be with Carol. Comfort her, Lord. Just give her peace of mind, peace of heart, Lord. Be her all in all, Father. Be her hope, be her, her, her joy, and be her fulfillment, God. Bless her family, God, her sisters, all that uh, are there with her, and um, Father, may you just comfort them during this time. God, for Brother Mario, God, that you touch his body, that you'd heal his lungs, God, and um, that, God, you would just be with him during this time. And Sally, too, God, we pray for Mr. Lyons and the Lyons family, God, that you'd be with him, that you would comfort him and give him peace, Lord, and his wife and, and, his fa- and all of his family, Lord. So, Lord, we just uh, ask those things of you, God. And we pray for those tonight also that might be sick, might be in the hospital. They might be lonely. Father, they might be, God, in need of financial help. They might not have a job. Whatever it might be, God, that you'd be with them right now. You would be their comfort. You would be their sufficiency, Lord. You would meet their need wherever they are and whatever that need might be, God. So, Lord, we look to you. You are our everything, Lord. And Father, we pray now that <clears throat> you'd open our ears, our eyes, and our heart to your word. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, open up to Isaiah chapter 37. Isaiah chapter 37. The title this evening is God Promises Deliverance. God Promises Deliverance. In chapter 36, it dealt with this Rabshakeh, which again is not the man's name, it's a title. And it means either chief of staff or governor. And he was sent by King Sennacherib, who was the king of Assyria. He was sent to King Hezekiah of Judah, demanding that the people of Judah surrender without a fight. And so the servants of King Hezekiah had talked with this ruler, this leader, if you will, this chief of staff or this governor, also, like I said, known as the Rabshakeh, he spoke with uh, King Hezekiah at the wall, if you remember in chapter 36. And when the people who were at the wall heard these, these demands that, that this chief of staff was making, the people freaked out. And they tore their clothes and they came to Hezekiah and they told them what the Rabshakeh said. So let's begin now in chapter 37, verse 1. And so it was when King Hezekiah heard it that he tore his clothes, covered himself with sackcloth, and went into the house of the Lord. So we're going to see now what Hezekiah does when his men bring back this report to him of the grim news. 
Well, his first reaction and response to this bad news, notice it says, he went into the house of the Lord. Man, that's where you take all of your problems. You take them to God. King Hezekiah most likely wanted to see God's guidance. And he wanted God's help in this time of need. So going into the house of the Lord is a smart move when you're in trouble. And when you're facing circumstances that are troubling you, that are beyond your control, and you can't understand them, it's a good thing to go into the house of God. Because there, we will get God's perspective of things. We'll get God's view of things. Asaph went through the same thing in Psalm 73, verse 17. He began to, you know, look at the wicked and how the wicked didn't seem to have any problems and how he was serving God and, you know, he was walking with God and doing all the right things and and he was experiencing difficulty in life. And he began to envy the wicked until at a certain point he said, until... And that was the turning point. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I understood their end. In other words, he said, they're enjoying this world. They're enjoying the good things of this life right now. But when their life is over, it's going to be a different story. They're going to be in torment. Lost in eternity in hell forever unless they come to know the Lord. He said, the tabernacle of the house of God is where the word of God was read and explained. The house of God is where prayer was made and sacrifices were offered up, where fellowship was had with the saints and where communion with God himself was had. It's far better, even if it's just for an hour or a moment, to be in the house of God than to have all the prosperity of the wicked during their whole life. The psalmist said in Psalm 84.10, For a day in your courts is better than a thousand. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. This shows that even Asaph was troubled with the temptation of the wicked. But the temptation really hadn't overtaken him yet. Not to the point that it caused him to neglect public worship and abandon the house of God and the worship of it or in it. You see, it's the right thing to do when you're tempted or you have doubts and difficulties to go to to church, to attend the public services, services, which is the way to get relief when you're tempted and to remove all doubts and difficulties. It's by reading the scriptures, the Bible, that you learn of the end of both the godly and the wicked. That the end of the righteous is peace rest and salvation and eternal life and the end of the wicked is ruin, destruction and death. Now living in this world and getting caught up with the everyday things that we encounter in this world, it's real easy to lose sight of God and the awareness of God. I'm liable to measure things by how they affect me today and next week. But when I look at them from where God is sitting... Okay, upon his throne and in complete control, that thing, that thing that's troubling me now, that thing that's upsetting my world right now, really isn't going to affect me from an eternal perspective. That is, when I'm in glory, it will have no bearing on my life. God's people here in chapter 37 are surrounded by an overwhelming, powerful army, and the enemy is rejoicing over Jerusalem. 
Because they're about, well, they think they're about to take Jerusalem. They think they're about to conquer it. And, and this, this governor or chief of staff is, is telling the people, what are you guys going to do now? I'm about to destroy you. And many times in our lives, Satan comes up and says, what are you going to do now? I'm about to end it all. I'm about to, to, to put an end to you and to your life and to all that you enjoy. All the people have left is God, which is not a bad thing. Will they try to save face and talk their way out of their problem? Or will they, for the first time in a long time, stop faking it and go deeper with God? And sometimes that's what it takes. You know, we go through life with God just, you know, cruising right along, not having really any difficulties and everything's good and it's easy to praise God when, you, when, when everything's going well. But sometimes we have to go deeper with God and that's sometimes what God allows those tough times in our life. And we got to give King Hezekiah some credit here because he gets real with God. You know, we need to be real with God. You can't be fake with God because he knows when you're being fake. But it says here that he, King Hezekiah, goes into the house of the Lord. He knows that what really matters isn't his relationship with King Sennacherib, but his relationship with God. He can see that nothing will help if it's not directly and immediately of God. His faith isn't some superficial, think-positive kind of attitude. And we know this because he tears his clothes and he puts on sackcloth, which was a sign of mourning and, and, and just... You know, just, he's just tore up inside. He is seriously aware of what's going on. He doesn't care about appearances. He turns to God in deep need. So King Hezekiah, man, he wants to hear from God. So that's why he goes into the house of God, in the sanctuary of God. He goes there and, and he sends Isaiah a message of humble honesty. Notice in verses 2 and 3. Then, that is, King Hezekiah, he sent Eliakim who was over the household, Shebna the scribe and the elders of the priests, covered with sackcloth. He sends them notice to Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos. And they said to him, Thus says Hezekiah, This day is a day of trouble and rebuke and blasphemy, for the children have come to birth, but there is no strength to bring them forth. Hezekiah is being flat out honest. He says, All right, I confess, we've blown it. We're not living a testimony to the power of God. He said, we are just spinning our wheels and we're going nowhere fast and we are worn out. And you know, that's what happens when you go through difficulties on your own and you're trying to figure things out on your own and your own wisdom and your own strength, it wears you out. You're just spinning your wheels, you're not getting anywhere and you're exhausted, you're mentally drained because we've been trying to do this on our own. We need deliverance, but we don't have the strength or ability to do it. That's why it says here, it's like a, a woman having labor pains, but she doesn't have the strength to bring forth the child. Verses 4 and 5. It may be that the Lord your God will hear the words of the Rabshakeh, whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to reproach the living God, and re will rebuke the words which the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, lift up your prayer for the remnant that is left. Verse 5. So the servants of King Hezekiah came to Isaiah. Notice how he talks about the Lord as your God. Not our God. He changes that, though, by the time we get to verse 20. 
Now, why didn't he say our God here from the beginning? So Hezekiah asked Isaiah to pray for them. Pray for the remnant. Pray for those that are still left in Jerusalem. The other, other cities of Judah have already fallen to Assyria. So Jerusalem now is, is in a very weakened state. All of their friendly neighbor cities have been taken. They're the only ones left. And they've received this reproach against God that he can't save them, that he's, not, he's a nobody, he's, he, he's just like one of the other gods, he can't do anything. And Isaiah now, he, he, I mean, uh, uh, King Hezekiah, he's concerned for God's honor in the world. You know, as we should be concerned for God's honor in this world because there's a lot of people in this world that mock God. They mock Christians. They mock the Bible. We need to honor the Word of God. We need to honor God. And Hezekiah is saddened by this because they have mocked God. His heart is in the right place now. And that's when God comes with a word of promise when we are in the right place with Him. Look at verses 6 and 7. So the servants... So the servants of King, it goes back to verse 5. So the servants of King Hezekiah came to Isaiah, and Isaiah said to them, notice, thus you shall say to your master, thus says the Lord. Do not be afraid, notice, do not be afraid of the words which you have heard with which the servants of the king of Assyria has blasphemed me. Surely I will send a spirit upon him and he shall hear a rumor and return to his own land and I will cause, I will cause him, notice, to fall by the sword in his own land. God assures Hezekiah here that he hasn't forgotten the blasphemy of the Assyrian. And... God can't nor won't ignore blasphemy. King Sennacherib wouldn't be killed near Jerusalem, but in his own land, verse 6 and 7 says. And this literally happened, as we'll see as we finish the chapter. God says Assyria is going to be destroyed. And look at how God deals with him. Not, no, and again, dealing with kings, the king of Assyria. Not armies against armies. God is infinitely wise. What God does, he messes with the Assyrian's mind. He changes his mood. It says that God will send him a rumor that he's needed at home. So he'll return to his land where God says, I will have killed him with a sword. The people of Judah don't have to take up swords. They don't have to go to war. They don't have to lift a finger against their enemy or break a sweat. God does it for them. He does it for them with a spiritual plan. That's how God gets the Rabshakeh here who boasted earlier to leave in chapter 36, verse 5. When he said, do you think that just words can substitute for military skill and strength? Who are you counting on that you have rebelled against me? So he was telling that to God's people. He was telling that to King Hezekiah. Well, well just words did him in. That's how God intervened on behalf of his people. God put this story in the Bible for us. Because unbelief still mocks faith in God. We still lose our nerve and God is still there to deliver us if we'll get real with him. He only wants us to trust him with a daring faith. Think about that. He wants us to trust Him with a daring faith. It's easy to say, I trust in God when I, ha I don't have to do anything that's bold and courageous. 
That's when we start to hesitate. That's when we start to think twice. Did God really say that? Or did God really mean what he said? You know, if nobody ever thinks we're crazy for the way we, we, we do things sometimes and stick our necks out trusting God's word, are we really living by faith? When somebody, does somebody ever say, man, you're nuts. You're going to do that? Yeah. God spoke to me. I believe that this is what God wants me to do. So, you know, if, if nobody ever thinks we're crazy, are we really living by faith? <clears throat> if no one ever asks us to explain, why would you do that? If nobody ever asks to explain the hope that we have in Christ, is our hope any different then from their hope? What? What is different about us than the world? What is different about the way we do things than the world does? And I just thought of three quick examples as I was studying this. We have one in Acts chapter 21, verses 12 through 13. It's Paul says, and now when, when we heard these things, you know, and that what, it, what the, the, the leaders, the, the Paul was giving, he was going back to Jerusalem, but the leaders told Paul, hey man, we've heard there's a lot of bad stuff going on in, in Jerusalem, and you know, they're, they're waiting for you there, and they're going to, you know, put you in prison, and, and, and so he said, when we heard these things, <clears throat> they're telling Paul, both we and those from that place pleaded with him, that is, Paul, don't go to Jerusalem, Paul. They were saying, Paul, that is, bad things are going to happen to you there, man, they're waiting for you, don't go there. Listen to what Paul said. What do you mean by weeping and breaking my heart? For I am not ready only to be bound, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. So when he would not be persuaded, they said, we ceased saying, we ceased saying the will of the Lord be done. You know, we, we can't talk Paul out of going, even though there's danger waiting for him. And they said, you know, what? we couldn't persuade him not to go. So we just stopped and just said the Lord, the will of the Lord be done. In Genesis chapter 12, verse 1 through 4, it says, Now the Lord said to Abraham, Get out of your country from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. So Abraham departed, notice, as the Lord had spoken to him. Can you imagine the Lord telling you one morning, Hey, I want you to leave town. I want you to pack up your family, leave your father's house. I want you to go somewhere I'm going to show you. What would your reaction be? It says, Abraham departed as the Lord has spoken to him. Immediate obedience. That's looking at him and said, are you crazy, Abraham? You're going to do that? You don't know where you're going? You're packing up your whole family? They have no, you have no idea what's going to happen to you? That's crazy faith. Also, when, uh, another great example is when Isaac, uh, or Abraham offered up his son Isaac. That, that was, I mean, in itself. Listen to what it says in, from Genesis chapter 22 through verses 1 through 17. It says, Now it came to pass after these things <clears throat> that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, Here I am, Lord. Then he said, Take now your son. And, and you know, as I'm reading this, I, I'm looking at certain words, like I mentioned, look at, the, cert, look at certain words, and, and, and they'll really tell you a lot. Now take your son, notice, your only son. Your only son, whom you love. It's like he's just making it harder and harder. Take the only son that you have, the one that you love, 
and I want you to go to the land of Moriah and offer him as a burnt offering on the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning. Notice the obedience. He got up early that morning to do what God had told him to do. So he says he got up early in the morning and saddled his donkey and he took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son. And Abraham split the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. Then on the third day, Abraham lifted his eyes and saw the place afar off. And Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey, the lad, with the donkey, the lad and I will go younger and worship and we will come back to you. Now check that out. God has told Abraham to take your son and offer him up as a sacrifice. But he tells the guys that he's with, hey, you guys wait here. Me and my son are going to go out and worship, and we will come back. Notice, his face said, okay, I'm going to go and do what the Lord said. This is Isaac, the son of promise. But he says, we're coming back. You would think, okay, well, I'm going to sacrifice. I'm losing my son, my only son. I'm going to, you know, and and I'm going to come back by myself. But he says, we will come back. Abraham's amazing faith, crazy faith. So Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering, laid it on Isaac, his son, and he took the fire in his hand and a knife. And the two of them went together. But Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father. And he said, Here I am, son. Then he said, Look, the fire and the wood. But where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, My son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. So the two of them went together. Then they came to the place of which God had told him. And Abraham built an altar there and placed the wood in order. And he bound Isaac, tied him up, and laid him on the altar upon the wood. And Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called, called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. So he said, here I am. And Abraham said, I'm sorry, and the angel of the Lord said, Do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, since you have not <clears throat> withheld your son, your only son, from me. Then Abraham lifted his eyes and he looked, and there behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up for a burnt offering instead of his son. And Abraham called the name of the place, The Lord will provide Jehovah Jireh. As it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time out of heaven and said, my, said, By myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son. Blessing, I will bless you. Crazy faith. And notice what he said, Blessing, I will bless you. You want to experience the blessings of the Lord? Live a crazy faith. A witness of crazy faith. Is our Christianity tonight that daring? Is it that bold? Is it that kind of crazy faith? Could that be one reason we see so few conversions today? Is that our Christianity isn't an alternative to turn to. People don't see a difference. Christianity today is protected, it's safe, it's predictable, like worldliness. The only difference is we go to church a couple times a month, two or three times maybe, whenever we feel like it. 
We think God's job is to make sure that our plans and our life are not disturbed. Lord, make my life comfortable. But God thinks it's our job to prove how real He is in the real world today. Yeah, we do get weak. We do get discouraged. And we need courage. And thank God we don't have to look to ourselves and ask, how full is my tank of faith today? We should look to God and ask, Lord, what new daring thing, what new daring act of obedience do you want me to take right now? How can my life tell the people around me that I serve a trustworthy God? When was the last time I made a decision that was so clearly of the Lord that it surprised even me? Are we shocking anybody today with our faith? And, you know, we really need to think about that. Verses 8 and 10, 8 through 10. <clears throat> then the Rabshakeh returned and found the king of Assyria warring against Libna, for he heard that he had departed from Lachish. And the king heard concerning uh, Terhaka, king of Ethiopia, he has come out to make war with you. So when he heard it, he sent messengers to Hezekiah, saying, Thus you shall speak to Hezekiah, king of Judah, saying, Do not let your God, in whom you trust, deceive you, saying, Jerusalem shall not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. So when, when Rabshakeh got back to his army, he found out that the king of Assyria had left Lachish, and he was going to war against Libna. And a rumor came that the main force uh, for the, of the Assyrian army was being attacked by the Egyptian army. So the Rabshakeh, he leaves Jerusalem temporarily to help the main force of the Assyrian army. But to save face, he sends a letter from King Sennacherib to King Hezekiah saying, I'll be back. I'm not through with you yet. The letter was intended to shake Hezekiah's faith in God's deliverance. The letter was intended for Hezekiah to freak out and go, we're in trouble. We're in trouble. Between the lines, Rabshakeh is telling King Hezekiah, hey man, don't kid yourself, Hezekiah. I'm not done with you. And don't believe what your prophet Isaiah told you. I am going to wipe you out and your God cannot help you. And how many times does the enemy tell us that? Your God cannot help you. I'm still going to wipe you out. Verse 11. Look, you have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all lands by utterly destroying them. And shall you be delivered? Again, King Sennacherib reminds King Hezekiah about all those victories that King Sennacherib had heard about and was familiar with. In other words, he's, he's trying to say, Hezekiah, why would you dare think that you could be delivered when all of these other lands have been destroyed? What makes you think you're so special? What makes you think you're not going to be destroyed? King Sennacherib is also suggesting by his question that the God of King Hezekiah wasn't as powerful as the gods of Sennacherib. King Sennacherib is kind of looking at this as a, context, a contest between gods. Between Jehovah and King Sennacherib's gods. It's like, okay, here's, here's the ring. You know, God's over here in this corner and the gods of Sennacherib are over here and they're going to come out and there's going to be this, this, this battle, this contest. Verse 12. 
Have the gods of the nations, notice, have the gods of the nations delivered those whom my fathers have destroyed, Gozan and Haran and, and, and Rezeph, and the people of Eden who were in Telassar? To, so, so to back up what, what he, King Sennacherib said in verse 11, he asks another question to Hezekiah. He says, the gods of the nations that were destroyed didn't save them, couldn't save them. So it only makes sense, Hezekiah, that you aren't going to be saved either. You're not going to be delivered either. So the inference is the God of Hezekiah wasn't any more powerful than the gods of the nations that he mentions here. Verse 13. <clears throat> Where is the king of Hamath, the king of Arpad, and the king, the king of the city of Serevam, Hena, and Iva? The king, then, then King Sennacherib asked, some, uh, uh, asked him some rhetorical questions. King Sennacherib, I'm, I'm sorry, King Hezekiah, where are the kings of all those lands? They've also disappeared. They tried to do the same thing you're doing. They resisted. They thought they were going to survive, but they were beaten down, and they're no longer around, and that's what's going to happen to you. Verses 14 through 20. And Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers. And read it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. Then Hezekiah prayed to the Lord, saying, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, the one who dwells between the cherubim, you are God and you alone of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see and hear all the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to reproach the living God. Truly, the Lord, the, truly, Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste all the nations and their lands and have cast their gods into the fire, for they were not gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore, they destroyed them. Now, therefore, O Lord, our God, save us from his hand that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you are the Lord, you alone. When everything around you is looking hopeless, quit looking around and look up and see God seated on the throne in complete control. Because if you look around for too long, and, and, and especially in the day that we're living in now, for the last two years, people have been looking around and they've been watching the pandemic destroy and just bum people out and cause great fear. If you look around for too long, that's all you're going to see. you got to look up. You're going to get bummed out if you just stare at what's going on here and you, and you just let it, you just focus on it. That's what King Hezekiah did when he received this blasphemous letter from the king of Assyria. He, he, he quit looking around and he looked up because he took that letter and he did what? He laid it before God. Not telling you, we, we, we look at the, we, you know, I would probably read that letter 50 times and, and go, oh man, what a mess. Look at what it says here. I mean, it just, it, it's hopeless. But he took that letter and he laid it out before God and said, look, God. Look what King, King Sennacherib is, is saying here. Look what he's talking about doing. Hezekiah looked beyond himself. 
He looked beyond his throne. He looked beyond his kingdom. And he looked beyond the power of the king of Sennacherib. And what did he do? He focused all of his attention upon God. And God's kingdom. And God, the king of Israel. Not only is the Lord God the king of Israel and all nations, he's the, the creator of the heavens and the earth. Hezekiah here now was in deep worship with God. As he realized the greatness of God. Lord, you created the heavens and the earth. You created everything that's in them. He realizes the greatness of God, the only true and living God. Hezekiah is a good example to follow when we pray about life's problems. Lay them out before the Lord. When we focus on the Lord and we see how great He is, it helps our problems. You know, it helps put our problems in the right perspective. Genesis 18, 14, it says, Is anything too hard for the Lord? The obvious answer is no. Jeremiah 32, 17, Ah, oh Lord God, behold, you have made the heavens and the earth. Notice again, Jeremiah is looking at him as the creator. Just as Hezekiah here looked at him as the creator. Your power, and he says, he says, you have made the heavens and the earth by the, your power, your great power, and outstretched arm. There is nothing too hard for you. Jeremiah 32, 27, he says, Behold, I am the Lord. God says, Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is there anything too hard for me? King Hezekiah had only one thing on his heart now. That the God of Israel would be glorified before the nations of the earth. King Sennacherib had blasphemed God. And he had blasphemed King Hezekiah. And King Hezekiah asked God to do something on behalf of Judah so that God's name would be honored. Remember the Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter 6, verse 9? What was the first request that Jesus prayed? Hallowed be your name. Holy is your name, God. King Hezekiah, being a faithful Jew, knew that the gods of those defeated nations, they weren't gods at all. They were just things made by men's hands. God's made by men's had out of wood and, 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 and metal and whatever they made their gods out of. They were nothing. They were, Paul said they were just vain creations, vain imaginations of men's minds. So some people rush into the Lord's presence many times when they have prayers. Or I should say when they have problems. They rush into the Lord's presence when they have problems, but after that, the Lord never hears from them again or any other time until they're in trouble again. But this wasn't the case with King Hezekiah. King Hezekiah was a man who at all times wanted the blessings of the Lord on his people. He wanted to know the Word of God. He wanted to know the will of God, and this gave him power in prayer. What a blessing it would be to a nation whose leaders know how to pray. This would be a different world if our leaders knew how to pray. Verses 21 and 22. Then Isaiah, the son of Amos, sent to Hezekiah, saying, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, be, Notice, because you have prayed to me against Sennacherib, king of Assyria, this is the word which the Lord has spoken concerning him. 
This is the word, the virgin, the daughter of Zion has despised you, laughed you to scorn. The daughter of Jerusalem has shaken her head behind your back. So God starts to answer Hezekiah's prayer right away. Sending his prophet Isaiah to him with a message assuring him that Jerusalem would not be taken. Verses 31 through 35. And that the Assyrians would leave. Verses 23 through 39. And the Jews would not starve. Verse 30. The virgin, the daughter of Zion, mentioned there in verse 22, means Jerusalem hadn't been ravaged by the enemy. She could look at the Assyrians and shake her head, ridiculing them, because they couldn't touch her. God would spare his faithful remnant and he would plant them once again in the land. Why do you think God would deliver his people when so many of them were unfaithful to him? First, to glorify his name. Again, notice verse 23. Whom have you you reproached and blasphemed? Against whom have you raised your voice and lifted up your eyes on high? Against the Holy One of Israel. This is what Hezekiah prayed about in verse 20. Now verses 23 through 29. Again, whom have you reproached and blasphemed and against whom you have raised your voice and lifted up your eyes on high against the Holy One of Israel? By your servants you have reproached the Lord and said, by the multitude of my chariots I have come up to the height of the mountains, to the limits of Lebanon. I will cut down, all, I will cut down its tall cedars and its choice cypress trees and I will enter its farthest height to its, to, uh, its fruitful forest. I have dug and drunk water, and with the soles of my feet I have dried up all the brooks of defense. Did you not hear long ago how I made it, from ancient times that I formed it? Now I have, thought, now I have brought it to pass that you should be for crushing fortified cities into the heaps of ruins. Therefore their habit, inhabitants had little power. They were dismayed and confounded. They were as the grass of the field and the green herb, as the grass on the housetops and grain blighted before its growth. But I know your dwelling place. You're going out and you're coming in and your rage against me. Because your rage against me and your tumult have come up to my ears. Therefore, I will put my hook in your nose and my bridle in your lips. And I will turn you back by the way which you came. The Assyrians would leave. God spoke to the proud king Sennacherib. And God reminded him of all the boastful words that that his servant said. King Sennacherib had boasted about his military power. He uh, boasted about his great victories and how nobody or nothing stood in his way. And if he wanted, King Sennacherib said, if I wanted to, I could dry up the rivers just like some god. But he forgot he was only God's instrument for accomplishing God's purposes on earth and the instrument cannot boast against the maker. God would humble King Sennacherib and his army by treating them like cattle and leading them away from Jerusalem. Verse 30. This shall be a sign to you. You shall eat this year such as grows of itself and the second year what springs from the same. Also in the third year, sow and reap, plant vineyards and eat the fruit of them. The people wouldn't starve. The same God who would deliver them would provide for them as well. Verses 31 through 35. And the remnant who have escaped of the house of Judah shall again take root downward and bear fruit upward. 
For out of Jerusalem shall go a remnant, and those who escape from Mount Zion, the zeal of the Lord of hosts, will do this. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, notice, he shall not come into this city, nor shoot an arrow there, nor come before it with shield, nor build a siege mound against it. By the way that he came, by the same shall he return, and he shall not come into this city, says the Lord. For I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. Jerusalem would be delivered, verses 31 through 35 said. God defended Israel for his name's sake because King Sennacherib had reproached the Holy One of Israel. The Assyrians had, had exalted themselves above men. They exalted themselves above gods, but they couldn't exalt themselves above Jehovah God, the Holy One of Israel. God also saved Jerusalem because he made a covenant with David. That's what he said in verse 35. Jerusalem was the city of David, and God promised that one day, one of David's descendants would reign on the throne forever, and this was fulfilled in Christ. Nothing could stop God's plan. In closing, let's look at verses 36 through 38. Then the angel of the Lord went out and killed in the camp of the Assyrians 185,000. And when people arose early in the morning, there were the corpses all dead. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, <laughs> departed and went away and returned home and remained at Nineveh. Now it came to pass as he was worshiping in the house of Nisroch, his God, notice, here is, here's um, King Sennacherib, he's, he's worshiping in the house of his God, uh, Nisroch, that his sons Adramelech and Sherezer struck him down with the sword and they escaped into the land of Ararat. Then Esarhaddon, his son, reigned in his place. Remember how the Rebshakeh boasted about how, how huge and powerful his army was and how nobody could stand against him? Notice it took only one angel, only one angel, God's angel, to wipe out 185,000 Assyrian troops. Now, this wasn't an ordinary angel, and no angel is ordinary, but what I mean by that, this says this was the angel of the Lord, possibly a Christophany. This angel may have been the pre-incarnate Christ, Jesus in person again before you know again he walked the, he walked the earth Isaiah prophesied that the Assyrian army would be destroyed and God just wiped them out but again that wasn't the end of the story after King Sennacherib left Judah a beaten man he went back to Nineveh 20 years later as a result of a power struggle among his sons it says King Sennacherib was assassinated by two of his sons Fulfilling Isaiah's prophecy back in verse 7 of this chapter where he said he would be killed by the sword, not in this land. Surely, he said, notice in verse 7 here, I will send a spirit upon him and he shall hear a rumor that re and return to his own land and I will cause him to fall by the sword in his own land. And the strange thing about this is that it happened in the temple of his God, Nisroch. The Rabshakeh had ridiculed the gods of the nations. King Hezekiah went into the house of his God and got help. King Sennacherib goes into the house of his God and he got killed. His own God could not protect him. And then the kingdom was then passed on to Esar Haddon and King Sennacherib is now out of the picture. He couldn't hurt God's people anymore. 
So the first major attempt of man and his kingdom trying to destroy God's kingdom was and always will be total failure. God promises to deliver. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. That is our promise from God. Father, we thank you so much for this chapter, God, for your word. And Father, let us never feel hopeless, think that we're hopeless, God, because you promised to deliver us, God. You promised to come to our rescue. And Father, we can stand upon those promises because not one word of your word has ever failed. So Father, we thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you for your goodness, God. We thank you for being the great and awesome God. And Lord, may we, may we have crazy faith, God. Crazy to the world, but normal to the believer, God. Lord, let us be what the world needs to see, God. Men and women who love you and who have this, this crazy kind of faith, God. Not because we're crazy, but because you are awesome, you are mighty, and you are faithful. And we stand upon your truth. We stand upon your word, God. We thank you, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.